Hello, now, my name is David Adess and I'm a poet in Sydney where I run in association with Westwards a poetry event called Poets Corner, which was a live event and is now a podcast event and welcome you all to it. Uh, Westwards is Western Sydney's literature development organisation. Poets Corner is part of Westwards public programming that celebrates the richness, diversity and insight literature offers. Especially in these times, we thank the ongoing support of Create New South Wales, the Cultural Fund of Copyright Australia, City of Parramatta Council, Blacktown City Council and Campbelltown City Council, as well as the many project partners that have enabled us to continue to provide opportunities to writers and audiences. We hope that this new world will see us sharing and a closeness of spirit. So as I've mentioned, each month, I invite a poet to read poems and talk about them uh, for about an hour or so around a theme of the poet's choice. Our guest poet today, whom I'll introduce in a moment, is Nathaniel O'Reilly, who will read poems and talk on the theme of belonging. But before I start, I like to do an acknowledgement of country. I'm recording this from my home in Beecroft, Sydney. Nathaniel is recording from his home in Texas, United States. I'd like to pay my respects to and acknowledge the elders, past, present and emerging of the Wellamita people, the traditional custodians of the land in Beecroft, and to acknowledge also that they are the sovereign owners of their land, which has never been ceded or given up. Nathaniel lives and works on the traditional lands of the Wichita and affiliated tribes, and we also pay our respects to and acknowledge their elders, past, present and future. And now a little uh, introduction. Uh, of Nathaniel. Nathaniel O'Reilly is an Irish-Australian residing in Texas. His books include Unbelonging, which was published recently recent, uh, by Recent Work Press in 2020, Preparations for Departure from UWA publishing in 2017, named one of the books of the year in Australian Book Review, Cult, published by Gin and Dara Press in 2016, Distance, also by Gin and Dara Press in 2015, Suburban Exile, Picaro Press 2011 and Symptoms of Homesickness, Picaro Press 2010. More than 200 of his poems have appeared in journals and anthologies published in 12 countries, including Antipodes, Anthropocene, Australian Love Poems, Cordite, 4W, 4X4, and so on. He's also been in the Newcastle Poetry Prize Anthology 2017. Hi, Nathaniel. Good David. Uh, Great to see you. Yeah, wonderful. Um, so the poets. Corner podcasts have been so far featuring poets from uh, different states of Australia. This is the first time we've gone international, which yep. is quite exciting. I'm very happy to welcome you to uh, to the program. Yeah, great to be uh, here. Now, uh, you've chosen as your theme belonging, and for those who are listening to my intro, your bio note, nearly all of your books reference it in some way or another. The titles to the books reference it in some way or another. But you you're going to be reading poems from your latest two books. Uh, preparations for departure and unbelonging okay. and the titles of these two books also really signpost the theme and it's clearly a very significant one amongst the many themes that you explore in your books and describing yourself in your bio note as uh, an Irish Australian living in Texas yeah. um, is another signpost isn't it you're straddling three cultures and three identities yes all of which no doubt inform the theme it's a very broad theme. Can you perhaps tell us a little bit about what the theme means for you? 
Yeah, I mean, for me, it's really about personal identity and the way that connects with various national and cultural identities. Um, you know, I was born and raised in Australia, uh, and from a very young age, I always felt as if I didn't really belong there. Um, I, I loved living in Australia. I didn't grow up wanting to leave. It, it was home to me, but I still had this kind of underlying sense that um, as a, a person of Irish and English descent, that it just wasn't my place. And, and even before I was old enough to understand colonization and terra nullius and that the country was stolen, even before that, I just had this kind of gut feeling that I was an outsider. And I mean, maybe part of that was just that I'd get sunburned up to five minutes. You know, it's just like these constant reminders, right? That you're from somewhere else. Um, but also my mum's father, my grandfather, maternal grandfather was born and raised in Dublin. And, you know, I would see him a lot. So there's that constant reminder of that very close family connection to Ireland. Uh, and then on my dad's side, going back about six generations to Ireland, but something that they talked about a lot and were very proud of and had lots of pictures in the house of the ancestors and family trees and things. So there's always this very strong sense of we're, we're from somewhere else. Um, and then, of course, once I moved overseas when I was 22, which initially was just going to be for two years, just go backpacking, see the world and come back. Um, now it's been 25 years. Uh, one thing just leads to another, as I know, you know, from experience, um, then you just have to evolve and you're just constantly confronted by these identities. Like when I first left Australia and was first in the US, people would say, oh, like you're the Australian. And I didn't really know what that meant because I hadn't thought of myself really as Australian before. It's like, well, I'm from Victoria and I live in this town and I went to this school and I went to this university and I like this team, but I didn't privilege national identity as one of my identities until it was forced upon me. And then it was usually to do with cliches and stereotypes. And so I had to think about, well, you know, to what extent do I accept that, you know, or, or question or, or reject it. Uh, and, you know, to make a long story short, like that process is still ongoing after 25 years. And so, you know, I've kind of come to the point of describing myself as an Irish Australian residing in Texas because it's literally who I am, but it also reflects that I have three citizenships, but I privilege two of them. Like I have American citizenship. I live here, but I don't see it as home. It's, it's not really my place. Like, but I see Ireland and Australia both as homelands. Well, I'm interested in the fact that you say that you're, the process is continue, continuing and, and evolving. Yeah. Um, but it's almost like a fixation because you keep returning yeah. to it in, in your books. Yeah. It, is there somewhere to go from here or is it, or is it always going to be um, an issue? I hope there is somewhere to go. You know, it's like you don't want to get stuck on the same themes. And I feel like my poetry has evolved a lot in terms of style and approaches and I'm using forms a lot more lately and uh, even my approaches to a different subject matter but I think deep down I don't think I'll ever be able to really get past the fact that I left Australia and became an expatriate and then I became an immigrant and those are very fraught contested terms right mm. especially you know there's a lot of sense of privilege that goes along with being a white expatriate as opposed to say an immigrant fleeing war or fleeing for economic reasons, right? And so it's really complicated and difficult often to discuss. Um, but even as like a straight white male with privilege, um, 
it, it's still problematic. Like there, at least on the personal level, right? There are like still issues that I have to deal with, right? It's like being away from home, being away from family, not being able to visit, especially right now, right? Like, you know, if one of my family members gets sick, I can't even go and see them. So, yeah. so there are like real life consequences. Um, so in terms of where from here, well, I think part of what's going to happen is I'm going to spend a lot more time in Ireland once they <laughs> let people back in, um, you know, hopefully a few months a year from here on out rather than just a few weeks a year. Uh, and I think that'll change things a bit in terms of, I don't ever really know what I'm going to write until I write it. Um, but I think being in different places and certainly having different experiences is going to lead to different kinds of material. All right. Well, I think we should get onto some, some poetry. So the first poem that you've chosen, yep. we both chose, that was fun. Actually, I chose some, you chose some, a little bit of a mix is poet makes the news from um, preparations for departure. Yeah. So this is a poem that I wrote um, when Seamus Heaney passed away, which was August 30th, 2013. So it's just gone the seventh year anniversary. And it just so happens that I'm teaching his work right now in one of my classes uh, at University of Texas at Arlington, where I teach creative writing. Uh, and I was talking to my students about it and said, you know what, I only just realized that Seamus Heaney is the only person I've written an elegy for who I'm not related to. Like all my other elegies are for like my grandparents that passed away. And so it kind of shows how much his poetry means to me. Uh, poet makes the news. I received the news from Dublin while eating breakfast. Seamus Heaney is dead. Thoughts turned to casualty, digging and midterm break. Shelley on Keats, Auden on Yeats. Driving to work, the radio on, I catch Heaney reading the last line of a poem I am too slow to recognize. His voice, unexpected, alive just hours ago, evades my guard. The tears come, oozing, uninvited for a man I never met. All morning, Articles, obituaries, videos of the poet reading his work arrive in my office, sent from Europe and North America. A colleague tells a grand tale of Heaney teaching her to dance a reel at a Cayley in North Carolina. Every major English language news organization in the world reports Heaney's passing. Syria is bumped. Obama can wait. Poetry is world news. I lunch alone raise a pint of Guinness in Seamus's honor, read scaffolding on my phone in the corner of the pub. Driving home, Heaney's on the radio, reading the tomb road, and Paul Muldoon is reminiscing about meeting Heaney in Amar. Muldoon attempts to read digging, chokes up, unable to swallow his grief. So I'm interested, um, Nat, in, in why this evokes for you a sense of belonging a poet that you've never met from presumably from a tradition that you, you relate to. Yeah. Um, I think in many ways, Irish poetry is the place I feel like I most belong as a poet in terms of my kind of poetic forebears and influences. Um, so on the level of early influences, certainly Yeats and Heaney and Kavanagh, uh, and then over the last kind of five years or so, I've been reading a lot of contemporary Irish poetry, you know, like dozens of different Irish poets. Um, and been visiting Ireland a lot more in the last few years, you know, usually twice a year and doing readings there and going to writers weekends and doing workshops. And so I feel really connected to the Irish poetry scene, uh, kind of ironically or paradoxically more than I do to the Australian poetry scene. 
And I think part of that is just the distance, the physical distance, like it's a lot cheaper and quicker for me to get to Ireland than it is to get back to Australia. Like, you know, it's a overnight eight hour flight, right? Versus a, as much as 24 hour flight. Um, sometimes you can get it as quick as 15, 16 direct to Sydney from DFW, but still there's that distance that just makes certain things possible and others not possible. Uh, and then there's also, I think the issue of being non-Indigenous um, like in Australia, certainly as someone who, you know, I did a PhD in literature focusing on post-colonial studies and I've taught a lot of um, Australian and post-colonial literature and I'm very aware of the facts, of the realities, of the debates regarding non-Indigenous belonging as being something that's a possibility. Personally, I question whether it is at all. Um, the politics of it, right, is very important to me. Um, and so I don't feel like I could ever really truly belong in Australia in that deep sense that someone can whose ancestors have been there for thousands of years. Uh, but when I'm in Ireland, I don't have that feeling. Like I feel like I'm where I'm meant to be and I'm treated like I'm from there, even though everyone knows I didn't grow up there. They're still like, oh, you're one of us, welcome home. You know, they're tremendously welcoming people in that respect. And because I have the ancestry, multiple lines of my family tree, like 10 different branches of my family tree from Ireland. Um, there is a kind of legitimacy to that belonging. It's just not, it's not just a warm feeling. Um, so I think that's part of where the Heaney connection comes in, but certainly reading the poem Digging, which was mentioned in this poem, I remember reading that for the first time in high school and that was part of what made me want to become a poet. Mm, there you go. Um, so you would almost, regard yourself as indigenous to Ireland? No, 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 I'm not indigenous to anywhere, right? <laughs> it's, 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 it's complicated, right? It's like my parents are both from small towns in Victoria, um, Port Ferry and Warrnambool. And those are the kind of towns where if you, you could be born there, but if you moved away, you're no longer local. Like yeah. you have to stay there. Yeah. Uh, to be considered a local. People can be very parochial about that. So mm -hmm. when I go to Warrnambool, which is where I was born, I can't say I'm a local. I can't say I'm indigenous to that place. No, I mean, I wouldn't dare. It's, you know, Gunjit Mara country. Like my ancestors farmed stolen land, right? Like, you know. Well, I, was saying, I was referencing Ireland, not, not uh, Warrnambool. Oh, right. Yeah. But certainly, yeah, you know, I'm talking about in Australia, but the same thing in Ireland too. It's like, well, no, I can't say I'm indigenous to there either because I've got a mix of ancestry, right? And I've, I was born somewhere else and I've got English ancestors and I've got Portuguese and Welsh ancestors too. So yeah, I'm just like a mongrel really. <laughs> and there is, it's, that's part of the problem is like, can there ever be one place that's home? Yeah. Then the other question is, well, do you need one place that's home? Yeah. How about having multiple homes? So that's what I think I'm kind of moving towards is having several yeah. places I call home. Just there's not the same depth as someone who's lived their whole life in one place. True. Uh, the next poem is Beach Bonding. Yeah. So this is another Irish poem. And this is for my daughter, Celeste. She's about to turn 14 in a couple of days. And this was about experience we had when she was nine. Driving along the Dingle Peninsula, we turn off the road from Anascore to Derrymore, follow a narrow lane towards the ocean find ourselves in a car park in view of the beach, follow a fast flowing stream down towards its mouth where fresh water meets salt, land meets sea, 
Stepping onto the beach, you run ahead towards the ocean over sand drifts, seaweed, dune grass, and driftwood. Arms raised and spread wide with joy, long brown hair blowing eastward. At the water's edge, you wait for me to arrive. Then together, we stand scanning the horizon. First west, where mountains blend into the sea, beneath blue skies and white clouds, sun shining on the eastern slopes, then straight out to sea, spotting a freighter nearing the end of its transatlantic crossing. Then east, where the bay curves to the left of our vision and low hills seem to merge with the horizon. We have the beach all to ourselves on this late December morning, and the only sounds are breaking waves, the Atlantic wind rustling clothing, and our boots squeaking in the sand. You select shells for an international collection while I take photographs as we walk along the water's edge through wet sand, dodging inch-high waves. I tell stories about our ancestors leaving this island on ships long ago, abandoning loved ones and homes, driven by desperation and dreams, until the wind turns our lips blue and we head back towards the car, but not before you choose the perfect piece of driftwood, lean towards the sand, write C plus N was here. So um, I, I guess there's a multiple strands to belonging um, and you're weaving a bunch of them into this poem. So your family and your ancestry, your family history and yep. place, yep. all kind of uh, mixed together. Um, and you're trying almost, it seems to me almost in a lot of these poems, you're trying to fix them in place by by all the details that you recount so that place now you have it's etched in the poem it's it's preserved yes and and is is there a fear that you're going to lose things if you don't do that yeah yeah i mean i was talking recently with my students it was the first day of the semester about four weeks ago now about reasons why we write like what's our motivation what drives us what do we hope to achieve? Who might the audience be, et cetera? And it takes a bit of prodding, but eventually they'll get down to the, the, the deep stuff and, you know, mortality and fear of death and Keats, you know, wishing for 10 more years so his pen could glean his teeming brain, right? It's like, you know, this sense of you got these things you want to say and get out there. And I was saying, well, I think a lot of people, if they're totally honest, they'll say they're writing to cheat death, right? They want to leave something behind that will survive them. Um, and I will admit that's, that's a reason. I mean, I don't have a big enough ego to think that I will be read after my death, but at least I got some books in some libraries here and there. Like if someone really wants to, they can find them. Um, but certainly the poems themselves are very much for me, a way of kind of preserving and documenting experience and building connections to places, um, and I don't think I would have written a lot of the poems I've written if I hadn't left Australia. Like, I would have written different kinds of poems. But, you know, my first chapbook, Symptoms of Homesickness, you know, I would never have written that. I mean, every one of those poems was an individual symptom of homesickness. And if you haven't lived abroad, like I know you have, but if you haven't, you don't understand that. You don't understand how deep those emotions are and how powerful they are and, and how there's this real sense of loss and wanting to stop things from slipping away right 
but it's also, as you noted too, about trying to do something for my daughter in terms of building a connection for her to her ancestry and her places like, like through me, that she's just another one in the line, right? That she's got that connection back to you. Yeah. 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 Uh, now the next, the next poem is, um, is one that I chose, <clears throat> Ode to a Coffee Pot. Yep. Yeah, this is um, a little bit for me on the comic kind of side. I can say a bit more about that afterwards. Ode to a Coffee Pot. Ah, Bodum, for two decades you have travelled across the seas, my constant portable companion, to work with me on three continents and never cease to provide comfort when called upon. Together, we crossed the Zachenyi, endured American autumns in exile, survived a London winter in poverty, enjoyed marvelous homecomings. I gently spoon freshly ground Colombian coffee into you and fill you with boiling water. Let you brew on your own, allow you to take your time like a teenage girl smoking on the front step of a rundown milk bar before pressing your plunger slowly towards your base. Together, we make lovely liquid. Smooth as the fleece of a vacunia, let us continue collaborating far into the future. I'll continue to protect you, whether journeying or staying home. Well, I mean, it, you might regard it as comic, but I, what I like is um, how the, you have this massive theme of belonging, right. Right? But, but you can reduce it to the smallest thing yeah. because we have attachments to things as well right. as to people and to place. And, and what you draw from this coffee pot is comfort. In a sense, you're taking the belonging with you. Wherever you go, you have that belonging. So it, it may be comic, but I think it's, it's true. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it's, you know, like there's always that kind of deep pathos under the comedy as well like the comedy can be a bit of a mask right you kind of joke about it so that you're not crying about it right um and it's kind of weaving things in there that part of my experience you know like the bridge in budapest and you know living in london and some people see that as some kind of like exotic you know privileged experience but at least the first time i was there it wasn't i mean i was the poorest i'd ever been in my life and couldn't afford to do anything, you know, like it, it was miserable, it was horrible for months at a time. Um, so I kind of wanted to indicate that, but how it kind of comes around, right? You have these different waves of experiences. Um, and then the, the image of the girl on the front step of the milk bar, I mean, that was something like from, you know, 20 years before that was just always in my head and I just kind of finally found a place where it seemed to fit. Yeah, well, you carry um, carry those things just like you carry the coffee pot. You carry it around with you. Yeah, yeah, and even something like the milk bar, I wanted to preserve that image because now it's like it's a bit hard to find a traditional milk bar, you yeah. know, like in a lot of suburbs in Australia, they're all being replaced by Seven Elevens and you know things like that. So it's a, yeah, there's a definitely a strong impulse to preserve the past as well, even on the level of like infrastructure. Because my critical work, my dissertation was on suburbia, so I'm like very interested in suburbia and the kind of communities that we have in the suburbs in Australia that are very often not written about, or if they are, they're often um, criticised in very shallow, narrow kind of ways, like the complexity of suburbia is not often um, foregrounded. 
in the critical writing or even in the, the literature. Mm. Yeah. The next poem is Dalesford. Dressed in a three-piece suit, purchased from an op shop, you recited Auden's lullaby as we drove from Ballarat to your twin cottages beside the lake at Dalesford. While your Labrador panted by the fire, we sipped tea and browsed a book on Australian art, pausing to examine pages devoted to your late father's work. Wearing hard yakka overalls, your partner joined us, pregnant with a child you conceived on the slopes of Mount Franklin. After we finished our drinks, you took me next door to your other cottage, where I was stunned to find every room full of books. You found the English patient, told me it won the booker and insisted I read it, that contrary to our lecturer's belief, literature published after 1950 is worth reading. 16 years later, I returned and found a bookstore beside the lake, but couldn't find a trace of you. Well, as I mentioned to you um, off screen, um, this poem resonates for me because I have a reunion of some people that I spent time with on a kibbutz in Israel in 1974 in Dalesford each year, or not this year, but for the last few years. I'd never heard of Dalesford before, and oh. it resonates with me. Um, there's, there is a lot of movement in your poems. Uh, you're going somewhere, you're coming from somewhere, you're in transit, you're in between. And does this sense of um, not belonging reflect or mirror an inner restlessness that you have? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I was, I was born in Warrnambool, um, but my family moved around a lot, um, largely because of my dad's job. He was a high school teacher who later became a principal and just kind of moved up the ranks. And so he was kind of moving from school to school. Um, but we lived in Victoria until I was six. Then we moved to Brisbane for six years, then back to Victoria until I went to uni and I went to Melbourne and then Ballarat for uni. Um, but by the time I was 20, I'd lived in like 16 different houses. Um, so I was always moving and there was an upside to that in terms of having lots of different experiences, got to see lots of different environments, lots of different kind of subcultures within Australia. But there was a big negative, which was, you know, always having to make new friends and always the new kid at school and you're always missing someone and somewhere. And we would always take these long road trips during the summer holidays as well. Like, you know, we'd drive from Brisbane all the way to, um, to Port Ferry or Warrnambool, which is like, you know, 24 hours in the car and we would like sleep in the car on the side of the road. And like, these were these kind of epic trips, which just gave me this massive love for travel and wanting to constantly move and go to new places. And so, yeah, I find it very difficult to be in one place for a long time. Uh, I, I now like to have like a home base in terms of like, my wife and I have now had a couple of houses that we lived in for seven years at a time. And that's the longest I ever lived in one house. Um, but in terms of traveling, it's like, I'm going crazy this year because, you know, I was in Ireland in January and then this year I was supposed to be in Australia in May and then Ireland for a month and then Japan and then Thailand, all those trips got canceled. It's like, I haven't left the U S since January and I don't know when I'm going to be able to leave now. So yeah, it, it's definitely like kind of in the DNA, just this feeling of, I got to move. I got to go somewhere. I got to see things, you know? I feel like I'm missing out if I'm not going to see new places. Mm. And there's something that we, I think when we're younger, we, we don't sort of understand as much as when we grow older. And that is that uh, nothing is constant. So right. the relationships change, people disappear, people go missing, places change. They're not the way you remember them. Yeah. Um, 
So wherever you thought you had your anchors, suddenly you, you feel like you're cast adrift. I think this poem speaks yep. to that. Oh, yeah, 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 very much so. And, and I went back just this past August of 2019 to Dalesford with my parents, like on a day trip. And even that bookstore that was by the lake, it was called the Book Barn, that's closed down too now, you know. So I can't find Toby in his cottages and I can't find the Book Barn. It's like, well, at least the lake's still there, yeah. you know. <laughs> Climate change, I don't know how long that'll be there too. Yeah, we'll see, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and the final um, poem that we're going to read from this book is the title poem, um, Preparations for Departure. Yep. So it was a nice segue there. It's kind of sums up a lot of those things. Yeah. Preparations for Departure. Born half a mile from the Southern Ocean, with salt in the air and seagulls on the wind, I am drawn to the edges of the world, always making preparations for departure. Unable to attain belonging, I exist in between, permanently unsettled and exiled. Yeah, isn't that, isn't that the human condition in a way? I mean, it's your personal perspective, but aren't yeah. we all somewhere like that? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess it depends on like your worldview or your religious view, like, as soon as you said that, a, a Van Morrison lyric popped into my head from Astral Weeks, where he's like, I've got a home on high in another world. You know, it's like, in the, again, this coming out of Christianity, the sense of, well, your real home is not the physical realm, it's, it's the spiritual world or heaven, right? And I know that's different in different religious traditions. Um, and, you know, I've, I've talked to some people who feel this way and others who just don't get it. They're like, no, like... I was born in this town and I've always lived in this town and I never want to go anywhere else. And I can't imagine not feeling like at home somewhere. Yeah. So, so I'm not sure it is universal. Um, I think it's, it's universal, at least in the sense that you'll find people everywhere in the world who feel this way. Yeah. Right. But there are people who don't, and there's a part of me that envies them. Right. There's that deep sense of connection. But if I think about it for more than 10 seconds, it's like, no, I'm glad I don't have that life. Like I, I, I'm glad I didn't spend my entire life in a small town in Australia. Like, like I would never take back all those opportunities and experiences that I've had from being able to travel and live in different countries and travel five continents, you know, like I'm so glad I had those opportunities, but there's, there's always that negative side to it as well, because it's like, well, the um, American writer Tom Wolf, you know, it's like, you can't go home again. And that's true. It's like, once you've taken that step, it's like, it changes, like you said, and you change and the people change. And even if you can go back to the physical place, it's not the same place anymore. So trying to go back in some ways is a bit of a fool's errand, right? Like you can't go back to what it was. You can just go and see what it's like now. So if you live in the one place the whole time, you change with the, with the place. Yeah, so. yeah exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. All right, well, uh, we should get on to Unbelonging, your new book. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the first poem is Your Gaze. Yesterday, I found a photograph taken in 1988 on the Oval after school. You wore a green tartan skirt, a white blouse, black stockings, a bottle green blazer and black Clark's school shoes. Your gaze ignores the camera, focuses on the plains north of school where we roamed on winter afternoons until twilight, watched rabbits bound towards their burrows 
and kangaroos descend upon the creek to drink. The plains where sheep grazed upon lush grass while we lay together in a hollow sheltered from the westerly. Your auburn hair curtaining our faces, apricot scent of shampoo in my nostrils, your tongue in my mouth, hands inside my woolen jumper, the plains erased from the map in 99 when bulldozers scraped the landscape, destroyed all vegetation and a new suburb was erected. Cul-de-sacs, boulevards, courts, crescents, quarter acre blocks, brick veneer houses, Caliban fences, concrete footpaths and backyard pools. In the photograph, your gaze writes an invisible history only we can read. So everything's gone except the memory of what was, in a way. And the photo that like brings back the memory. Yeah. And part of what's curious about that poem for me, it's, it's a very unusual poem for me in that almost all of it's totally made up. Um, like the events in the poem, none of it actually happened. Like the, the photo doesn't exist. The relationship with that, the girl in the poem doesn't exist. Like the details are all true. It's like the same school uniform I had. The landscape is true, but it was very much a poem imagined, an imagined event, but based on probably half a dozen at least different kinds of experiences and places that I was really familiar with. And also different kind of um, intellectual obsessions like Gerald Manane's novel, The Plains was a big inspiration for the poem, but also all my like work on suburbia and Australian literature. Yeah, I was gonna ask second, about that. Second half, yeah. It yeah. does into that work, doesn't it? Yeah. And I even wrote that poem like for a five word poetry competition. One of those ones where it's like, oh, here's five words, you've got to put them in a poem. So I kind of started with like the words photograph and oval and gaze, and that, that's just kind of what it led to. But it's interesting, like what you were asking about before in terms of like, will you ever write something different in terms of your subject matter? Uh, and I wrote a poem earlier this year in Ireland at a workshop that was a found poem. All the poems were taken from articles from that day's Irish times. And actually other participants in the workshop chose which words I would use, which lines. But even when it was finished, it was still all of my same typical obsessions and concerns. <laughs> like I just couldn't get away from them. So, so the poem's called Homesickness Remix. <laughs> yeah, you can try, but it just chases you down. Yeah, well, but I like the idea of the gaze because we are um always looking and we're looking to one another we're looking to place we're looking to past we're looking for our anchors we're looking for our sense of identity where we belong so the gaze is integral to the whole the whole idea of belonging i think yeah. and, and and obviously as a poet the, the whole idea of observation and, and being witness to to the change that's happening and 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 the feeling that goes with it yeah um, and the next poem is, uh, is this a word that you invented, unbelonging in a way? Um, as far as I know, I wouldn't like to claim too much, but, uh, you know, I was looking for something that, um, you know, belonging didn't seem to be quite the right word. Unbelonging didn't seem to be quite right. So I thought using, you know, the parentheses as Americans would call them around the un, was to kind of like signal this disruption yeah. and that it's like neither here nor there. And that's why I also have like the Heaney um, quotations, one of the epigraphs, like you are neither here nor there, you're a hurry through which known and strange things pass. Like this sense of you're in between this liminal state, but can you ever really get to one state or the other? 
It's yeah. like, yeah, I do partially belong in some places, but I don't fully belong in those same places. And so yeah. I was kind of hoping that the title um, would signal that. But yeah, the title is originally from this poem that I'm going to read, which was the first draft. It was probably written 10 years before the book came, kind of came together. It's like the, the, the book title originally came from this poem title. Yeah. Okay. 22 years ago, I returned from the Northern Hemisphere for the first time after two and a half years away, escaped from a London winter with snow on the ground to a searing Melbourne summer. We rode the bus to Canberra to renew a distance damaged friendship. We drove north from the bush capital to Bathurst. Along the way, I introduced her, introduced her to the tragically hip, road apples and phantom power. She gave me the gift of grace. We navigated drought browned land through Gundaroo, Gunning and Garanda, stopped to swim somewhere unnamed by settlers. After Europe, the distance between towns seemed immense, the land a nothingness, my Anglo-Celtic skin foreign and ridiculous. Taking turns driving, attempting reintegration, I wondered if I could ever belong again after so much time and distance. In Bathurst, I slithered down the water slide of the public pool with the freckled kids, swam laps while she sat in the shade, rolled joints beside the back fence, smoked behind gum trees. That evening, she joined her choir, performing Handel's Messiah in a local church. I sat stoned in the gallery, the closest to heaven I'd been in years. We ditched the godbotherers after the concert and drove down to the Macquarie, where we rolled our own, talked into the early hours, diminished the distance between us, and finally drifted into dreams beside the Whispering River. So we say, I wondered if I could ever belong again. Yeah. Um, the inference is that at some stage you did belong, but the way that you've talked today, you, you, you sort of sound like maybe you never did. Yeah, um, no, it's complicated. Um, I mean, if I had to kind of rephrase it, I mean, it's hard to exactly pin it down in, in a poem in terms of how specific it would have to be, but like, I felt like I mostly belonged. Um, like I never questioned that, well, I'm Australian, right? It was just like, I just grew up, it was just in the air, right? It was like, it was just taken for granted. I felt like an outsider, but in terms of like my cultural identity, I, I didn't feel anything but Australian. And then when I moved overseas for the first time, then that became exacerbated because everybody on the one hand saying, well, you're the Australian bloke and that's all they know about you. And they just put this, slap this label on you. So then you have to think about what that means. But on the other hand, it's like you, you're homesick, you're missing home. You're doing things like, you know, going to pubs to watch the Aussie rules grand final and watching the Wallabies matches and wearing Wallabies jerseys and drinking fosters, you know, all this stupid stuff just to like feel some kind of connection and to not let that identity slip away because it feels like it can slip away. And then part of it, which hasn't really come up in any of these poems for some reason, is um, often when I would go back for visits, like people would question my identity all the time. They'd be like, you're not Australian, like, where are you from? Who are you? You know, like, and it's like, I was born down the road. But, and so you're getting this pushback that there was a very strong sense that you couldn't be hybrid. You couldn't be more than one thing. It's like, you're Aussie or you're not. I was like, no, that's, that's way too simplistic. Like, you know, people are complicated. Identities are complicated. Don't try and put me into a little box. 
and again, as Pom now too, looking back on the actual episode it's about, it's like, well, I don't know, I've been gone two and a half years. And I was already wondering, could I ever belong again? And now I've been gone 25, like, you know, two and a half years was, I was just getting started, right? So there's, there's a kind of naivety to it for me as well, looking back at it. Like, mm. I didn't know what I was really getting into. Because on that first trip back, I was back for seven weeks and I kind of wondered if I'd stay. And then I decided not to because I thought there's still so much I haven't done, so much I haven't seen. Uh, and I went back to Europe and haven't lived in Australia since. Yeah. Mm. But you do position yourself um, in a lot of the poems. We haven't read them, but uh, apart from the one with your daughter, you position yourself as belonging where the heart is, which is the family. Yeah. Yes. That's very, that's very central. It comes through in all of your work. It was very central to your sense of belonging. There you do belong. It's, there yes. it's to be clear. Yeah, yeah. And as long as we're together, we can go anywhere together and we have that sense of belonging, yeah. So like place is super important to me, but ultimately it's about the people that you're with. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the next poem is a poem I can't pronounce and, I don't know, and, and I'd like you to explain the title to us before you read it. Yeah. Yeah, so it's a Welsh word. Um, I am probably getting the pronunciation wrong. Um, Heraith or Heraith. Um, I have Welsh ancestors, but, you know, I didn't learn any of the language, right? So I uh, apologise to anyone who speaks Welsh for getting that wrong. But it's um, a poem. It actually contains two lines adapted from Dylan Thomas, uh, one from There Shall Have No Dominion and one from Fern Hill. But the word itself, it's apparently hard to translate into English. So it's kind of a combination of like nostalgia, homesickness, and a deep longing for home, but perhaps a longing for a home that didn't actually really exist. Yeah. Like a longing for like your fantasy of what right, home yeah. was, right? Um, so when I wrote this poem, I was teaching Dylan's, Dylan Thomas's work at the time, reading a lot of it, thinking about it a lot, and kind of in my mind, it was merging with my own past, but also kind of an imagined past of, what my past could have been if I hadn't left, if I'd stayed or, you know, made different decisions, etc. Sunday afternoon reading Thomas, overwhelmed by Hiraith, remembering when we went down to the shore young and easy, tumbling on the sand beside the waves, seagulls swirling overhead, pelicans gliding above their prey, sand in our hair and between our fingers, yearning for a time beyond time when youth had no end passion burned eternally and death had no dominion the grass on the sand dunes bent beneath the force of the southerly the crest of the waves blown to foam the sky merging with the sea yeah i love that poem it's beautiful um and it references something uh, about belonging that that resonates with me and that is um youth in a way you know when when uh when we're young it, it's a fraught place because we're trying to work out where we belong and what our identity is yeah but everything is possible still right and uh and and we don't belong any more strongly i think than we belong to our youth yeah so then when we when we lose our youth yeah when the youth becomes just a memory yeah. There's a kind of yearning for the time when we were young, when, when we had that sense of belonging because, and that innocence and that um, peace in a way 
that 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 disappears over time as yeah. things get more fraught and more complex. Uh, yeah. um, is that what you're saying in part in this poem? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, especially the part about youth having no end, passion burning eternally, death has no dominion. Right? You know, the idea of being immortal and like those kind of golden days of late teens, early twenties when you're just full of life and energy and passion and all those things that if that could just kind of laugh last forever right and you know poets have been writing about this for millennia right this halcyon days etc uh, but yeah i think part of this too is you know i've written this poem after several years after turning 40 you know like after going through the midlife crisis all that kind of stuff right so very much this sense of I can't even pretend to be young anymore, right? It's like for a long time, kind of my work identity was like I was one of like the young, cool professors, right? Because everyone else was, you know, 60, right? No knock on you <laughs> if you're <laughs> close to that age. You know what I'm saying? But like in comparison, I was seen as younger and thought of myself as younger. But then when you get to, to 40 and it's like, oh, wait, I'm 20 years older than my parents or my students or 22 years old. I was like, I can't kid myself anymore. What does that mean? And so, yeah, you have to kind of come to an acceptance of all the things that you can never get back. Right. And, and you know, people do stupid things, you know, people buy convertibles and have affairs and, you know, all that stuff. But it's like, I'd rather just write a poem about it, you know, healthier way I think to deal with it. Yeah. And the, and the nostalgia is, you know, it's not, it's not over sentiment, sentimentalized. It's not, you're not wallowing in it. It's a, it's a, it's a reflection of something that's, you know, real and you acknowledge it. And, and yeah, yeah, I hope so. Um, and this is something I was thinking about too, like nostalgia and how that might fit into like kind of my cultural influences, like talking earlier about Irish culture and Irish poetry and, Irish music as well. I'm very into Irish music and like those themes that we were talking about in beach bonding, like themes of like departure and exile and loss and separation from family and like crossing the seas and desperation, you know, the, the coffin ships, all of that. Like that's those to me, are like the major themes of Irish music and poetry. And I really connect to that because I feel it in a different kind of way, right? It's like, yeah, I didn't have to leave because of the famine, but I still know what it's like to live in another continent from my family and hardly ever see them. You know, it's like I can connect to it in a way. And, and I don't think there's anything wrong with being nostalgic. Like nostalgic can get a bad rap. It can be seen as very unhip, uncool, unsexy, right? That it's too cheesy or whatever. And I think if it's done right, it can be tremendously profound because it can connect with some of the most powerful human emotions that we have, right? The, the loss that we have, whether it's our loss of the youth or loss of loved ones or loss of a, a hometown. Yeah. yeah. It's a subject we could go on exploring. Yeah. Sure. Sure because you're going to read another poem. Yeah. 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 So this is a uh, Kengal. That's actually the name, the indigenous name of uh, a place close to Wagga that's also called The Rock, but I prefer to use the indigenous name for it, for the title. On a Saturday afternoon in autumn, we climb the rock and discuss past lives. Details of shearing, the current price per lamb, the 10 year drought, virtues of various properties, the lives of shearers and fruit pickers, orchards in the Goulburn Valley, 
roo shooting in Western New South Wales. We climb higher through Ironbark and Cyprus, past a Girl Scout troop, fitness first families, young couples staying sexy, higher and higher, keeping an eye out for Australian ravens, bim bins, peewees, and the elusive intentionists, climbing between lichen encrusted boulders and sandy red rock, finally reaching the summit to survey a spine of hills curving south, green and brown fields, tree-lined roads, dams, railway lines, the Olympic highway, blue skies smeared with vapor trails, white clouds and distant towns. Milbrolong, Tutul, Urinquinti, Yurong Creek, Mangopla, Collingully, and the Murrumbidgee unfurling westwards since time immemorial through Wiradjuri country. So it's important, isn't it, to, to name places? Yes. Um, I think that's a function, and one of the functions of, of poetry is, is the naming of places. Um, and I like in this poem the acknowledgement of the Wiradjuri people, that their belonging is obviously the deepest belonging yeah. and, and uh, the longest history with that, that place. But you, in a different way, belong there too. So it's a, there's a kind of sharing of belonging. It's not just an individual thing. There's, a, there's community belonging, there's collective belonging, there's different kinds of belonging. Um, and then there's the interplay between memory and reminiscence and, and place again. Um, I, I, I really like what you're doing with this. Oh, um, thanks. Yeah. yeah, one of the things I was going for is like as the speaker of the poem is on this climb up this small mountain, um, going through different layers, there's like different layers of things that are visible, different perspectives. And so, you know, at one point you're seeing the, the highway and the railway lines and the dams and all of like the evidence of the settler invasion, you know, and the infrastructure that's been built over the last century and a half or so. Um, but then the further up you get, you actually see the landscape that was there first what was built upon, like the spine of hills. And then I tried hard in the naming of the towns. I mean, I didn't name the towns, but in terms of what I chose yeah. to use all the indigenous ones I could, because I really wanted to emphasize, well, they were there first and they were there for thousands of years. And the Murrumbidgee, you know, unfurling through time immemorial, especially because that phrase time immemorial, you know, it's a phrase that's been used a lot uh, in indigenous land rights cases and used, um, in the document created by Vincent Lanyari with the Wave Hill walkout and used by the Yerkula people in the NT, um, you know, and goes actually back centuries before um, to like English um, people whose lands had been enclosed by the commons, like basically as a legal argument that it was their land first. Um, but I just really wanted to acknowledge that because I'd been on Rajuri country for about a month as a writer in residence at Baranga nearby and I, I would disagree actually that, that I belong there. Um, it's like, yeah, I was that particular place. I was there for an afternoon and had a wonderful experience and made some great friendships and deepened some other friendships. But I, I only ever see myself as a guest there. And so one of the other poems I wrote during that time, it's, it's in I'm Blowing, it's the last poem in the Baranga sonnet sequence called Departure. Um, the last line of that poem is acknowledge the Wiradjuri um, you were always a guest in this country. 
and that deliberately had like that double meaning of like, well, I'm always a guest to Wiradjuri country, but I'm always a guest in Australia too, even though I was born there. It's like that, those layers of, of belonging, right? And in my view, I don't have the same right to belong as, as other people do. And that there's, there's a, some people will contest that, there's debates we can have about that, but I just wanted to acknowledge my personal position that I saw myself as a guest there. And yeah. I mean, I wouldn't contest that. What I would say is that there are different layers of belonging and you can have a belonging on a visual level. Yeah. Obviously it cannot match right. the belonging of indigenous peoples. Yeah. Um, and in that sense, we are all, all white people are guests here. Right. Um, uh, but, but we can still have our own particular sense of belonging, whatever it is. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, many of the most important places in the world to me on an emotional level are in Australia, right? It's like, I do have this tremendous connection to Australian places. And even in the poems that are set in other countries, you'll see they often are set on beaches. They're often set at that, you know, liminal space with the land connecting to the sea because the Australian beaches were so important to me growing up. I was born right by the beach. I would go to the beach every time I went to my grandparents' house. You know, it's like so much of my life revolved around the beach that even when I'm in other parts of the world, I still am drawn. Like I go to Iceland and I'm just going straight to the beach. You know, it's like, that's just what feels essential to me is, is that particular space. Yeah. Um, just a little aside. Um, the most recent Australian novel I read was um, The Yield by Tara June Winch, uh, just won the Miles Franklin. And that is set right at the base of Kangal. Like it's yeah. literally right there. Like it's so it's in the background throughout the narrative. Yeah. yeah. Wonderful. I have to read that book. That's a really good. Yeah, she wrote most of it at Barango. Is that right? I thought she wrote yeah. most of it in Paris or something in Paris. No, she spent a lot of time, like a number of different visits there. Um, and in the acknowledgements in the back, she talks about how much of it she wrote there. Yeah. But yeah, it's a great novel. I recommend it. Ah, okay, good. Um, well, we're going to go full circle because we're going to come back and the last poem you're going to read is, uh, is about family again. Yep. Um, about your grandfather. Yeah, so this is um, As He Lays Dying and obvious nod to Faulkner there and um, it's in memoriam for my paternal grandfather Peter George O'Reilly he was born in 1927 he passed away in 2017 about six months short of his 90th birthday so he had a good long innings as we like to say in Australia in another hemisphere across half a continent and an ocean my grandfather lies dying I am unable to hold his hand kiss his forehead share a long neck of carton draft Say, remember when your ball almost gored me at Timboon? I should have listened to you and stayed on the tractor. My daughter loves the painting of the galah you gave her last time we visited, before we had to put you in the home. The Gerudery letter is pure Irish bush poetry. I often recall the taste of the molasses you gave me from the bucket in the dairy after milking at Timboon. You never told me your favourite Slim Dusty song. I never cared that I didn't catch any fish when you took me fishing at Logan's Beach. I just wanted to watch you cast out beyond the breaking waves, reel in whiting after whiting as if they were waiting for you to bring them home. I always admired the way you broke the necks of the kittens we found in the Hessian sack beside the rubbish bin in the beach car park. You were stoic in your mercy, but I saw the tear before you erased it with the back of your sun-damaged hand. I meant to research it and, and didn't get around to it. What is the Gerudery letter? 
Oh, so that's um, the most famous letter that Ned Kelly wrote. So he wrote four letters that we know of that are still in existence. And the jewelry letter is about 8,000 words long. Uh, and it's basically a justification of his actions um, as to why he had committed the robberies of the banks at Euroa uh, and the shootout with the police at Stringbark Creek. And it, it's called the jewelry letter because it was published, uh, sorry, it was composed in jewelry in New South Wales while they were holding up the town for the weekend. Uh, and he was, wanted to get it printed there at the printing press that the local newspaper had, the Girardery and Urana Gazette, and it all went wrong. And the, the police got hold of the letter and they took it down to Melbourne and they suppressed it. And the actual contents of the letter didn't come out until decades after um, his death. It's an amazing piece of writing. Um, it's tremendous, like, use of language and insults and just amazingly creative. And that was the letter that became the basis for Peter Carey's novel, True History of the Kelly Gang. Okay. And, and the reason- I haven't read yet. Yeah, but the reason it ended up in the poem is that my grandfather, Peter, you know, he was a farmer, he left school at 14, he was not a big reader, but I went to visit him and he had the Jerudery letter on his coffee table and he was reading that. And that was just kind of amazing to me that that had found its way like into his hands. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, I think that's a very fitting poem to to end the theme of belonging. Uh, thank you so much, Nathaniel. That's been wonderful. Um, yeah, thanks, David. When this video is posted, it will include information on how to obtain copies of your books, Nathaniel's books. Um, Poets Corner will return next month, uh, October, with Melinda Smith. Thank you very much.